The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Doing that, I want to uh, tell you a story uh, from my life. And uh, as I was growing up, I was very involved with sports. Anybody uh, just do sports? Uh, I grew up in sports. I played sports, all kinds of sports. Uh, and, and God had graciously gifted me with a, a very uh, athletic uh, body, if you will. And so I'm lean. I'm, I'm kind of strong. I, I had a late growth spurt. And so uh, in, in elementary school and in junior high, uh, I was really fast and, and I would do physical fitness all the time. And it was kind of in those years that I decided to be a, a PE teacher. Later, stopped being a PE teacher and now I became a, a pastor. But uh, I, was, I was loving sports. And so, so much so that I uh, began to develop late in life, and so it wasn't until after high school that I got into college. And in college, uh, my physical uh, abilities allowed me to play basketball at a very high level, so I got to play basketball in college. Now, in college, my body was still developing. I was still growing. I was getting stronger. I was getting faster. I was growing taller, but one thing that was also late to develop for me was my prefrontal cortex. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's the part of your brain that helps you make wise decisions. And so because I was a late prefrontal cortex bloomer, I think that the other guys in my dorm in college were also late in developing their prefrontal cortex because we made some really unwise decisions. How many of you know what I'm talking about? So it was in college, one night around midterm time, the guys and I decided that we were going to go out in the middle of the quad, surrounded by all of the dorms, and light off some fireworks in the gazebo. Oh, why why are you frowning on that? Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Now, okay, these weren't just simply normal fireworks. One of the guys had one of those firecracker, like, Chains. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so there's this spool, apparently, that you, there's firecrackers, and they go around and around, around and around in the spool, and they're all really tied together. So if you light the first one, what happens is that they all start going off. Well, he had a spool, I kid you not, it was about two feet wide. And this spool would last anywhere between 60 and 90 seconds of constant popping, right? They were so loud because we put them under this gazebo. So anyway, it's two in the morning. We go, we light this, and the thing just starts going. Now, you don't think 60 seconds is very long until you realize that the thing doesn't stop. It's just going and going, and lights in the dorm rooms are coming on, and people are coming out. It sounded like a machine gun, like we were under attack, and the four of us were just dying laughing. Anyway, security just begins to emerge on our location. We start scattering like cockroaches when you turn the lights on. We start running around, right? And it's dark, and this campus was not well lit. 
No, no, never mind that. So I was running around this building, which at the time was the computer lab. How many of you know, remember the computer lab? This was before everyone had personal computers. You actually had to go to a lab to type a paper. I'm running around this building, which was at the time the computer lab. And as I run around this building, there are two of the security guards right there. Literally, I'm standing face to face with two grown men. Now, Fortunately for me, normally security guards are a little out of shape and maybe a little older. And so in my physical ability, my heart, my adrenaline just kicked in, right? And my heart told my prefrontal cortex to turn and run the other way. And so I did one of those like cartoon, like halt to a stop kind of things. And I literally turn, I look at them, they look at me, and I go, boom, and I'm gone. I've never, I think I set the world record, like how fast someone could run. Anyway, I take off and I'm sprinting as fast as I can because I'm so scared. I don't want to get caught, right? And I run away. Anyway, long story short, I ran so fast that when they caught my friend eventually, who was much slower than I, they asked him, who is that other guy? Because that guy needs to run track or something. And so he wouldn't tell them because snitches get stitches. And so uh, he didn't tell them, and so uh, we were safe. Anyway, well, I tell you that to tell you that when some people think of the book of Jonah, they think that Jonah is some type of fable or a story like that where God kind of confronts Jonah and he like does this thing and then he just sprints the other way and is like, no, you can't catch me, God, right? And he runs away and, and then God shows up and punishes Jonah and sends the storm, beats him into submission, swallows him by a fish, and then gets Jonah to do what God wants to do. Now, I tell you that to tell you, to remind you that this book, it's not about Jonah just running from God. And it's not necessarily a book about Jonah telling God no. And it's not simply a, a fable about Jonah being swallowed up by a big fish. But rather, this is a true historical account about God's mercy. That when we run from God, he is merciful and he has steadfast love to those who turn from him. And it is a story about how those who call upon the Lord for salvation, and he meets us right in that moment. The reason why we need to see the book of Jonah as historical, rather than simply a parable or a, a fable or a story, is really two reasons. One, Jonah was a real man. Jonah had a real father. We see that. Jonah was referred to in 2 Kings 14 about his work for God. So he was a real prophet, he was a real person, and most importantly, the second reason is because Jesus refers to Jonah's story as historical. So in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, he comes and he says, he says this in verse 39, Jesus answers them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, everyone say sign, 
See, people out there, they're, they're seeking for a sign. I want some proof. I want some, some sign. He says, this generation, it seeks for a sign, but no sign, say sign, but no sign will be given to it, that generation, except the sign, say sign, except the sign. So there is a sign. There will be a sign. I'm going to give them a sign. You want to seek a sign. Here is your sign, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater, say greater, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus told us that Jonah is historical. It actually happened. And so some of you might be asking, well, come on. I mean, how can a man survive in the belly of a fish for three days? Well, he probably can't. No more than a person can die and be put in a tomb and then raised back to life after three days. Which is why Jesus says it's a sign. It's not normal. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, understandable. Jesus said the sign of Jonah was actually no ordinary event in the same way the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is no ordinary event. It's a miraculous sign of God's gracious and powerful salvation to those who would believe. There's no point of trying to explain Jonah scientifically in the same way there's no point of trying to explain the resurrection of Jesus scientifically. It's a miracle. It's a sign. It is a sign from God for us to believe. Now, that brings us to Jonah chapter 1. Now, the word of the Lord, everyone say word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Everyone say great. So God calls Nineveh great. He says, Go to that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So he says, This is a great city and their evil. And so their worth and their value in the sight of God is not based on what they do, but who God says they are. They're great. They're evil. I want to save them. Rise up. Go to Nineveh, he says. He says, go and cry out against them, for their evil has come up before me. Now, to understand what this meant, really, for Jonah, is we have to understand the Ninevites were some of the cruelest people in the world, they had very few friends. The Ninevites, they would conquer a city. And what they would do is they would, they would conquer a city and then they would skin the men, the women, and the children alive. They would peel their skin off. Does that sound nice or wicked? Then he would take their skins and they would display them outside of the city so that everyone could see how strong and powerful they are and it would cast fear among the people. 
Then what they would do is they would dig holes and bury the people up to their chins until eventually they would die of thirst. Does that sound wicked or nice? That's why they don't have any friends. So they would bury them up, they would die of thirst, and then once they're dead, they would cut off their heads, cover up their necks with the dirt, and then take their head and make a mountain of heads outside of the city to warrant judgment upon anyone who would dare come against us. And so not only that, we need to understand that at the same time, these Assyrians, these Ninevites, were doing this to the conquered lands. The prophet Amos, which we spoke about a couple weeks ago, the prophet Amos was crying out against the sins of Israel, saying that God was going to raise up a nation against them and destroy them. The nation was Assyria. You can read about it in Amos 6, verse 14. But Nineveh was the chief city of Assyria. And so just about the same time Amos was prophesying, hey, if you don't turn back to the Lord, there's going to be a nation that comes and destroys you. He comes to Jonah and says, hey, I want you to go to the Assyrians and tell them to repent. God told Jonah to preach to an evil people. God goes to the chief city of the Assyrians and is called to tell them about God. So let me just ask, how do you think Jonah felt about that command to go to Nineveh? Maybe he didn't like it. Maybe he was bitter. Maybe he was angry. Maybe he said, there's no way I'm going to them. Because why? Jonah didn't want repentance for them. He wanted vengeance. You ever felt that way against a group of people or a particular person? Jonah didn't want their repentance. And so, hear me, no matter where you are today or no matter what you've done, our God is a God of mercy. And our God is a God of steadfast love. And our God, no matter where you are or what you've done, wants to bring you Home, God wants even the sinful, disobedient to call out unto the Lord and be saved. Jonah 1 verse 3. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to call out. But Jonah rose to flee. Everyone say flee. So he doesn't go that way. He actually goes the other way. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence, say presence, the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going the other way to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into the boat and to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence, say presence, the presence of the Lord. So, Jonah, he hears the call of God to go to Nineveh, but what does he do? He flees. He actually runs the other way. Now, I need you to remember something, that Jonah is actually a man of God. That Jonah is actually a prophet. Jonah is actually a man who hears from God and speaks for God, and he has a very successful ministry. He served the church. He was involved. He was a dynamic leader. 
The people in the community loved him and liked him and listened to him. He even had the Christian station set in his car stereo. Yet, he's avoiding the call of God. When God asks him to do something, he says, no, thank you. Let me tell you what that means. What I've come to realize is that people have figured out that church is one of the best places to avoid God. See, many people in church today, they try everything they can to avoid being obedient, yet looking obedient. We do everything we can to look a certain way rather than actually obeying what God has to say. Many people, we busy our lives with so much church service or outward righteous religious acts, and because we're trying to simply flee from the presence of God. And we make ourselves so busy with righteous things or good things, but many people have forsaken the call of God. And listen to me, it's not just our fault. Like the American church does a fabulous job at making this easy for you. To giving you exactly what you want. Let's give them what they want so that they'll be happy, that they'll be comfortable and they can hide from God all of their lives. We've come to believe that singing is the same thing as worship. You say, who do you worship? Well, I sing to the Lord. We've come to believe that serving is the same thing as tithing. We believe that fellowship is the same thing as actually making disciples. They're not the same thing. And we wander off into thinking that if we just simply host a party or a festival, that that's the same thing as missions and evangelism. It's not the same thing. Or we've come to believe that being nice to someone is actually the same thing as sharing the gospel with them. Listen, it's not the same thing. So we want entertainment, not self-examination. We want honorable tasks, not holy transformation. We want religion, not necessarily relationship because in a relationship God will hold me accountable to what he says but in religion I can just look a certain way and what's incredible to me is that American Christianity has become more about seeking preferences and comforts rather than hearing from God and actually obeying God and so the church has become about styles preferences. I just want to go where my friends go, not necessarily where God is calling me to be. And we wonder, we wonder why so many Christians have never experienced the line that says, the word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to me. And the reason why we don't hear it is because when the word of the Lord, when God comes to us and says, go to Nineveh, we say, Nineveh? 
No. I'm just going to go to youth group. Nineveh? No. No, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just go join a Bible study. Nineveh? No, 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 no. I'm busy. I I just want to go and do some fun things with my friends. Let's just get together and have some fellowship. Nineveh? You must be crazy. And so, as Christians, God calls you to go to places like Nineveh. But we would rather go to a church service where it's safe and where it's comfortable. There's no real accountability. We want Christian groups, not Christian mission, because mission is messy, and we don't like to get messy. And when God calls us to get messy, we look for any opportunity to go to the other way, away from the presence of the Lord. Did you know the word presence here is actually translated as the word face? Jonah knows he can't outrun the presence of God. Jonah knows he can't go somewhere where God is not. Jonah just simply wants God out of his face. Let me tell you something. If you want to run from God, it will be very easy for you to find a ship going the other way. Our world is full of ships that are sailing away from the face of God. And you have an enemy who is a liar and the father of lies and he is a great deceiver and his whole job is to ready ships for your disobedience. And so Jonah takes the ship. He pays the fare because there's always a cost to disobedience. And God sends a mighty wind against the ship. Scripture calls it a a mighty tempest. It says that the storm was so fierce that it was actually about to break the boat apart. And so much that the men on the ship were so scared that they're like, we're going to die. Let's throw every, all the cargo and everything we have to, to overboard so that we won't sink. And so that doesn't, that doesn't help. And so they just start praying. You just pray to your God of whoever, and you pray to your God of whoever, and you pray to your God, your little G God, and maybe that God will help us. But guess what? Nothing seems to work. Because they're not really gods at all. And so they're praying, they're crying, they're looking for anything that would help. They say, it's not working, what should we do? I know, let's cast lots, let's try to decide whose fault it is. It's gotta be someone on the ship. And sure enough, the lot falls to Jonah, who's in the bottom of the ship hiding. And so Jonah confesses in verse nine. He says to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence. Everyone say presence. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he told them. So, 
But men are like, it is your fault. You tell us you serve the God of heaven. You serve the guy of dry land. You serve the God of the sea. You serve the right God. You serve the Lord. And it is your fault that we're all going to die. What should we do? I don't know what we should do. Jonah says, I have a suggestion. Just throw me over. Why would he rather be thrown over than just simply go to Nineveh in the first place? I'll tell you why. Because shame and guilt is very powerful. He feels ashamed and he feels guilty because he knows what he ought to do. It's just throw me over. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. They tried to get him out of it. Listen, you'll always try to find friends around you that will try and get you out of it. I don't want to disobey God, but I don't want to obey him either. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Let me try and find a group of friends that will reinforce my disobedience. Who's going to row with me? They row hard, try to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore, they called out. Say, called out. They called out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay it not on us, this innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as you plead. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from raging, and then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah is now in the water. The ship keeps going, and Jonah knows that he's going to die. Which brings us to his prayer in chapter 2. Last week we talked about Habakkuk and how he would praise and honor the Lord no matter his circumstance. And Jonah is here, about to perish, and he cries out to the Lord. What we need to see, that Jonah prayer, Jonah's prayer actually comes while he's in the fish. I need to point that out. So when you read this prayer, when we read this prayer, we need to keep in mind that Jonah refers to his distress in the past. He means the time that he spent in the water, not the time that he's spending in the fish. Are you with me? So the water is the threat of death. The fish is the refuge of salvation. The cry of distress is past tense. He's in the water. The voice of confidence and praise is in the present. Because he's in the fish. Let's look at it together. Jonah chapter 2. Verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from where? The belly of the fish. Saying, I called out. Everyone say called out. 
I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. There's a simplest statement that sums up what happened. I cried out to God, and he heard my cry. I cried out to God, and he heard my cry. There's a lot of encouragement for us here that God answers the cries of those who are in distress. Not only that, but you also need to see that Jonah was not on his way to Nineveh. He was running from God. He's overboard. Listen to me. He was absolutely guilty. He absolutely disobeyed. That's why he's in the water. He's in the water because he's disobeying God. Some of you, you're in trouble right now precisely because of your disobedience. You're wandering from God. You're asking God, is there any hope? I've turned my back on you. I've gone so far away. Did you know that Joppa and Tarshish was about 1,500 miles away from Nineveh? He's literally going the other way. And he says, God, would you have mercy on me? Hear my cry of distress. If you're here today and you feel like you are so far from God that there is no chance, welcome to the club because that's where Jonah was. He says, God, hear my cry. Jonah's distress was actually the result of his guilt. And God still answered him. And God still gave him another chance. So here's how I would encourage you this morning if you feel like you're drowning in shame. If you feel like your guilt is crashing over you. If you feel like I'm in a season of great disobedience, if your disobedience is the cause of your distress, cry out to the Lord. God will answer you in spite of your guilt. Not only that, but look in verse three. For you, Cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and all your billows, they pass over me. Who's the you that Jonah is talking about? When he says, you cast me into the deep, your waves and your billows are the ones that are drowning me. Who do you think the you is that Jonah is talking about in his distress? God. It is you who put me here. It is you who's drowning me. It is your waves that are crashing over me. Jonah knows it was all God. And he knows that God was angry with Jonah in his disobedience. And God was going to require a penalty for that. God was going to require chastisement for that. And I suppose that nothing puts us in more despair or more distress knowing that God is the one who actually puts us in distress. And you might be saying, well, 
if God put me in this situation, then there must be no point of crying to him for help. Jonah, he knows God put him there. He knows this is what he deserves, yet he still calls to the Lord for mercy. Even when God is displeased with us and brings affliction and distress upon us, listen to me, God's purpose always includes redemption. Listen to Job 36, 15. God delivers the afflicted by their affliction by bringing them to a point of nothing. That we have nothing to earn. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing to barter with God on. And God brings us to that very point of affliction by our affliction and opens up our ears by adversity. Adversity is redemptive, not merely punishment. All of the wages of sin and all of the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ Jesus on the cross so that you and I, those who would believe in Jesus Christ, are not under wrath, but rather we're under mercy. The scripture says that if you put yourself in Christ, you are not only under uh, mercy, but you are under his grace, you are under his provision, you are under his salvation. But if you refuse the wrath of God poured out on Christ, then it says that the wrath of God remains on you. You have a choice. You can say, I receive Christ as my salvation, my wrath absorber, my atonement. Or you can say, I'm going to work it out myself in these billows and waves. It says that if anyone is in Christ, the punishment has been paid. In Christ, we are not under wrath. We are under mercy. If you ever felt as though the hand of God was against you, and you feel like in your day of distress, listen, don't despair to call upon the Lord. God answers his children, even in spite of the judgment that's happening. God desires to deliver you from the mighty storm that he put you in. In verse two, he says, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. Look at how he keeps going, verse four. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deeps surround me. The weeds are wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh Lord, my God. How many of you would admit it would be a terrible thing to get overboard on a ship. Even if the storm was calm. Ever been on a cruise? Big boat? Middle of nowhere? It would be horrible to fall over and it just keep going. But now imagine much worse. How much worse would it be if you're in the ocean and 30-foot waves are crashing over you? It's sucking you down to the bottom so deep that you're actually touching the ground. You know for a fact I am done for. 
And if that were not enough, in between the billows, as you climb yourself up to get a breath, you find that seaweed is wrapped around your neck. That's a terrible scenario. Have you ever felt like that in your life? Isn't it funny? I don't know why it is, but it seems like in the Christian life, distress and troubles always comes one wave after another. You ever feel that? One after another. As soon as I feel like I'm getting a breath, another one crashes. Distress and troubles, they keep billowing over me. It's one after another. I'm being, I feel like I'm being thrown around and, and I'm drowning and I can't even catch my breath because I'm being strangled from all these other things in your situation. It just simply seems impossible to get through. God let Jonah's circumstances become impossible for him. Impossible. There's no way Jonah was getting out of this apart from his mercy. When we call out to the Lord in our distress, he answers us, he delivers us, even from the impossible. Verse seven, he says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Now let me just say something for your sake. We need to get out of our minds this kind of all or nothing answer to prayer. Well, I prayed and I asked God and we think that either God's gonna do all or nothing. Listen, Jonah cried out to God. When he cried out to God, he didn't say, oh God, would you just please send a fish to swallow me up so I can live there for three days? He probably said, God, if there's any way, if there's anything at all that you can do to save me, I need your mercy. I'm going to die. I'm going to drown. I need help. It's impossible. Just have mercy. And God answered him by sending a fish. That hardly seems like salvation, doesn't it? When Jonah realized that he had been saved from drowning, he doesn't complain about the fish. Hear me. He doesn't complain about how smelly things are. He accepts God's gracious, merciful provision of salvation for him. So much so that his prayer in the belly of the fish says, salvation belongs to the Lord, I'm saved. Some may say, well, Jesus came to save us. Why would he allow so much evil in this world? I mean, if Jesus is so good, why does it smell so bad? I don't know if I could trust a Jesus that would still allow so much evil and so much smell in this world. Let me just tell you, God is good. And there was a time that God stopped all the evil in the world and he let everyone drown. 
He did stop it once. And everyone died. That's because evil is just not in the world, it's in us. We need saving from us. I need salvation from me. The wages of sin is death. And we all deserve to die. We've all sinned. And so God would have been just in simply just letting Jonah drown. And because, because we refuse to actually take seriously our, our sin and the weight of our sin against the holiness of God, we say things, how dare God crash a wave over Jonah? How dare him? I mean, what did Jonah do that was so bad? I mean, he didn't hurt kids. That guy maybe deserves to drown. He didn't murder nobody. I mean, that guy obviously deserves to drown. What was so bad that Jonah deserved the judgment of the depths of the sea? Well, Jonah knew what God told him to do, and he said no. That sounds like a holy God to me. Jonah knew the good that God told him to do, and he said, no thanks. Why don't you send somebody else? Do you think of your sin that way? He simply hardened his heart toward God. Not only that, he hardened his heart toward the people that God wanted to use him to save. Listen, God cannot lie. He promised in his goodness, instead of destroying all of mankind for all of their disobedience, God said, I'm not just going to destroy them, I'm going to save them. I'm not going to destroy them. I'm going to save them. But not by sending a fish, but rather sending my only son to die in their place on the cross. I'm going to send my son as their saving grace and their mercy toward all the destruction that they deserve. And people, they hear the gospel and they hear the message of salvation in Jesus Christ that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and we reject him simply because we don't like the smell of the fish. Oh, I don't like that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try and swim for it. I'm going to try and grab some seaweed and see if I can make something out of this. And they try and swim their way to safety simply because they don't accept the salvation that God has provided through the gracious, merciful work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness for you. Did you know Romans 3, 19 and 20? It says, let every mouth just be quiet. And the whole world held accountable to God. Jonah's held accountable to God. The people of Nineveh are held accountable to God. We're held accountable to God. The whole world will be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, by your religious actions, by your morality, by your trying to doggy paddle your way to safety, no human being will be justified. Not one. 
God clearly says, you can't save yourself, but some of you refuse. You just simply don't want accountability to God. It's not that Jesus isn't true. You just don't want to be accountable to him. God says, you can't save yourself. You need my mercy or you're going to drown in your sin. Salvation only comes through Jesus Christ for all who would believe. Jonah understands the salvation, that God has sent this salvation, and he praises the Lord for it. Look how he ends. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. God so loved the world that he came and he sent Jesus. But when you continue to chase your idols, you forsake the hope of Christ and you forsake the steadfast love of Christ. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and he threw him up. God's provision of salvation has produced the proper effect in Jonah. It is the result that God is after. Wonder and praise. I say wonder because, because it, it makes Jonah look at all the idols in the world and he says, why would anyone forsake the love of the Lord for that? I don't get it. God taught Jonah that if he left the Lord, he leaves his mercy. And he filled Jonah's heart with praise and thanksgiving for the salvation that he, he promised. God answers us in our distress in order to win our loyalty unto him. In chapter three, Jonah goes back on the land. God sends him to Nineveh. Jonah goes and he preaches Judgment to the people. And in chapter three, verse five, it says, the people of Nineveh believed God. And they repented. That's faith. They believed God, and they turned from their ways. It doesn't say they believed Jonah, it says that they believed God through the message of Jonah. So when you're hearing the gospel message, whether that be from me or from anyone else or from the scripture, it is the word of God. We are to believe God. Verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Two things happen when someone comes to know the mercies of God. They believe God, and they repent of their sin. They believe in Christ, and they turn from their sin. They say, God, I'm going the wrong way. I'm heading toward Tarshish. I, I need to be going your way. I need to be following you. They turn from their sin, and they believe by faith. Now, let me remind you, Jonah was disobeyed God. God put him under the threat of destruction. Jonah cries out in his distress. God answers him. God saves him. God gives him a new life. The people of Nineveh disobeyed God. God put them under the threat of destruction. They cry out in their distress. God answers them. God saves them. God gives them a new life. God extends mercy to any people who will trust and repent. Any person 
No matter where you come from Nineveh or you come from Joppa, it doesn't matter. In your distress, when you turn to God, he hears you. He will save you. What saves us is not our nationality or religious obedience, but faith. And the book of Jonah shows us who the real Savior is. There's a contrast between how Jonah feels about the Ninevites and how God feels about them. Jonah wants to see them destroyed. God wants to see them forgiven and restored. Jesus says that he was a prophet like Jonah. Actually, he says that he's greater than Jonah. Jesus said that his death and resurrection was the fulfillment and the sign that was given through Jonah. Jonah was cast into the sea and swallowed by a fish. He was in the depths of the ocean for three days, and then he came back to life on dry ground. Jesus was cast into the sea of God's wrath. That's the cross. He was in the depths of the earth for three days, and after the third day, he resurrected. The difference is that Jonah went through all of that because of his disobedience. Jesus went through all of that for our disobedience. Jonah ran from his enemies. Jesus ran toward them. Jonah was on a mission of revenge. Jesus was on a mission of rescue. Jonah was all about his own self-protection. Jesus poured himself out in self-sacrifice. Nineveh's sin against all of the people was great, but our sin against God is even greater. Our sin crucified the Savior of the world. May the word of the Lord come to you today. And may the voice of God penetrate your hearts. And may it turn us from our running to trusting Jesus and turning from our sin. And may each one of us call out to the name of the Lord and let him hear us and save us. May the Lord answer you with salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God of mercy we come to you this morning in our own wandering in our own wavering in our own running from your face Lord I pray that the word of Jonah would reflect Jesus Christ in each of our hearts this morning and I pray, oh God, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will hear the cry of our hearts in our distress, and you will have mercy on us. Jesus, I trust that you came and you lived the perfect life that I could not live. And you died that death that I deserve to die. And you rose to life proving as a sign of your victory over my disobedience. And so Jesus, today, we want to put our faith and our trust in you. If you're here today and you've never done that, will you just right now Will you just surrender to Jesus? 
Would you ask him right now to forgive you? Would you ask him right now to save you? Would you call out to him? And his grace and his mercy, may it fall upon you and give you a new life. Jesus, forgive us. Jesus, cleanse us through the waters. Cleanse us through your blood. Wash me and give me new life today. Jesus, I need you. I need you. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, then I believe that the word of God tells us that he hears you. He knows you. 